This IFF podcast now has an official sponsor, the IFF Financial Corporation. That's great. The IFF Financial Corporation has really helped the IFF a lot over the years, and I'm really glad to see them sponsoring this podcast as we continue to grow it. So before we get started with this episode of the IFF podcast, I urge everybody to visit Financial Corporation's website, www.iaff-fc.com. And welcome back to another edition of the IFF podcast. Mark Treglio is here. Co-pilot Doug Stearns joining us today. How are you, Doug? Doing well. How are you, Mark? Good, good. You know, Doug, it's been a couple weeks since we've had an uh, episode of the IFF podcast, and we've actually been pretty busy. So uh, to start things off, it's been election season, so I wanted to congratulate you and the strategic campaigns team on the success from the recent elections, as uh, well as your work that you did with the Biden campaign to uh, to help elect the president. So I want to congratulate you on that work. You did a fabulous job. Thanks, Mark. I think the uh, the Biden campaign certainly was a team effort. I think the whole IFF staff and our folks in the field all came together to really make a difference and do something historic. Uh, I want to give a shout out to all of our strategic campaign specialists as well. We were involved in over 85 campaigns this year, and we had a 71% win rate, which is pretty remarkable when you consider most professional groups don't have anywhere near that. So those guys are doing a great job out there, and we'll continue to kick ass for all of our members whenever they need us. And, you know, if, as if election season didn't keep us busy, we were also on, uh, uh, sadly, we were on the disaster circuit for a bit. Uh, you and I had a chance to get down to Louisiana, spend a couple of days down there for Hurricane Delta, where we uh, we got to debut the new disaster relief trailer, which was which was pretty cool. Take it around, show the members, uh, provide some support, and uh, help raise run- money for the foundation. And we also spent some time in California with Local 3631 at the Silverado Fire uh, as they are dealing with uh, two critically injured members right now. And uh, it's a tough situation out there, but they've done a great job responding to help the families in need at this time. And uh, a strong operation out there. It was a good job on their part. I think what we've seen this last month, month and a half, all told, is really the power of the IAFF and its diversity in the services that we provide from helping members who had their houses damaged in a hurricane to helping folk, our two burn members, helping, you know, get them everything they and their families need to pushing through at election time. That's just a portion of what the IFF's doing. And it really shows the power that we have when we all work together on things. And, and these programs, the IFF offers, they expand across the entire IFF, United States, Canada, uh, we have local in Guam getting ready to have one in the Marianas Islands out there. And, uh, you know, this sort of gives us a good opportunity to segue into today's discussion. And that is back in September. Uh, we always think of wildfires in California, but Oregon uh, in the Pacific Northwest really had a, a bout with some serious wildfires. And they were pretty destructive and far spreading across the state. So, uh, you know, in this episode, we're going to talk to some firefighters from out there, from our Oregon State Firefighter Council, and how they how they handled the situation and stepped up for their members. And joining us today, uh, first and foremost, is a, is a longtime friend of mine, somebody who I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for, as Carl Kennick. He's president of the Oregon State Firefighter Council. How are you, Carl? Uh, good morning, Mark. I'm just fine, thanks. Uh Trying to uh, trying to get ready for a ledge session here, a uh, little bit of presumptive COVID for firefighters, and uh, and just uh, watching the uh, chips fall. I think Carl, we'd we'd be remiss if we didn't take a minute to congratulate you on your recent marriage. Um, just from all of us here, congratulations, <laughs> man! Happy for you. So not only are you trying right, to balance everything for the state association, you're trying to balance everything with a new wife at home. Yeah, and luckily. Luckily, I'm also remodeling a recently burned home, so I've got oh, a lot man. of stuff going. So, uh, but everything's going to be new inside, so it's lots of fun. Burned up a couple friendships, asking for trade favors and all the things that go along with uh, rebuilding a house, but uh, it's going well. We got sheetrock, tape, and texture today, so we'll be able to uh, keep moving on for a uh, hopefully before Christmas remove in. 
All right. Also joining us today, we have a full panel, by the way. So uh, we have three additional guests that, that are joining us today. Uh, first up is Aaron Bustard from Local 2596, Jackson County Fire District Number 5. How are you, Aaron? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Way to tell us about yourself, Aaron. Good job. Up next. <laughs> I can tell you more. <laughs> this is new. Go ahead, Aaron. Tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, so I'm the president of Local 2596, uh, uh, Jackson County Fire District 5, and uh, we're kind of located in the southern end of Oregon. Um, our district uh, butts up to the California border and uh, kind of runs up to the, the Medford area. Um, mostly a rural district, but we do cover two small cities within the, that area. Good. Also joining us is uh, Mark Corliss, president of uh, Local 1159, Clackamas County. How are you, Mark? I'm doing good this morning, fellas. How are you doing? Good. Clackamas County is uh, just south of Portland. So we are kind of in the suburbs, out into the foothills around Portland to the south, just to give people a geographic area of where we're at. Okay. Last but not least, joining us today, uh, President uh, from Gresham, Local 1062, Kevin Larson. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing very well. Uh, like Clackamas, uh, we are a suburb of Portland. We're just on the east side of Portland, uh, so and we're just north of Clackamas. So we're all kind of um, matched together there. So to kick things off, uh, this was early September. I believe it was September 9th or September 10th in, in that time frame. Uh, we got a call from Oregon stating that there were some fires raging in the state. Uh, I know Doug and myself, we got on some emergency calls with the Oregon State Council uh, leadership there. And, you know, it was it turned out to be more than a regular wildfire, uh, just a regular small one. So, Carl, take us through those early, early hours of the fire and what you were experiencing. Uh, well, so uh, I will uh, we're we're pretty fortunate on this call to have uh, Mark Corliss and Aaron on the on the call. Um Basically, we had nine conflagrations. Uh, that's a all hands uh, state ordered. Uh, Y'all come. There was just nobody to come because those nine fires all started within about 45 minutes of one another. So imagine uh, we can handle a couple at a one time. And and uh, most of our fire wildfire urban interface fire stuff happens uh, in the Bend Redmond sisters area. And this time it was on the west side, and uh, they started from really from the California border north, and uh, we had a wind event uh, somewhere upwards of 80 miles an hour, much like Santa Ana winds down south in California, same sort of thing. And we just had uh, explosive fire growth on not, had nine fires at one time, and I think the importance to remember is. If we have one, we can we can mobilize fairly quickly. The governor calls a conflagration through the state fire marshal's office, and then we start getting resources from everywhere, uh, is how it works in Oregon. And uh, basically, at nine at one time, everybody just kind of freezes in place, and you're on your own. Much like how they talk about FEMA taking your first 72 hours, you're going to be by yourself, kind of as a disaster a preparedness thing. We were basically on our own for about a week. That really centered around kind of doing the best you can for a, a very long time. And, and Mark and Eric can both talk about the details. At the state level, we were really concerned. Uh, we only platoon about 1,000 firefighters, 1,000 career firefighters across the state. And uh, at, at our peak uh, during these fires, we had 26 of our 3,600 members on duty on the fire line. So... Uh, that that didn't leave us much uh, resiliency if you're uh, if you're one of those emergency preparedness people. So three quarters of the workforce is on the fire line. We knew we were going to have problems, and we also knew by the fire propagation maps that a lot of our members were going to be affected by this fire. At that point, we reached out to a DVP Ronnie, who got us in contact with the international between uh, Rick Swan and AGP Morrison on the uh, peer support side, we started getting, and then just the magic, I guess, is the best way to put it, uh, things started happening. Thomas Breyer uh, gave us some fire propagation maps. We turned our uh, office into an ops center for our members. 
uh, put out uh, via all social media, email, tweet, text, that if you had any issues regarding stuff, just call our one number. And we had that staff for nine days, 24 hours a day. We had morning briefings. We set up just like a regular communication center for our uh, seven district vice presidents and the rest of our team to uh, be able to uh, really facilitate anything we could short of firefighting resources, which is really what we needed. We did place uh, with Briar Shop. We uh, we were able to uh, get, we made 500 phone calls to members inside the uh, red or go zone on our fire propagation, fastly growing fire propagation maps that we were getting from the statewide command. That intelligence was uh, coming to us uh, right at morning briefing. And then we were turning that over to Thomas and he was coming back and giving us those contacts on a pinned map. And uh, we could just literally uh, drag our mouse over that particular fire. And then if we clicked, it would give us an Excel spreadsheet of the members inside that, inside that fire propagation map. So the disaster resources from the international were amazing and really made contacting our members inside those zones super easy. And uh, that, that was, uh, that was kind of our ops side. And then we moved in realizing that this was going to be that sentinel event for a lot of our members, not specific to any one fire, because we had really nine complex fires, all with IFF firefighters on them doing their thing. Uh, we knew that this was going to be a peer support event. So we uh, mobilized our Oregon State peer support team. And also with that, DVP Ronnie uh, was able to talk to AGP Morrison and got Will and his team to call in and help Jeff. And then between there's so many names and so many people, right, that it immediately got involved in such a high level. But uh, Newton ended up bringing Los Angeles County firefighter Scott up. And he has been to Oregon before on some of our mass shooting incidents. He has a very uh, good reputation with Oregon. And uh, he was able to meet Jeff down in Southern Oregon and uh, they uh, they helped Aaron's uh, Aaron's team, Medford Firefighters, Jackson Three, and Ashland really work through some issues. And I'll let Aaron talk about that in a little bit because he lived it firsthand. Uh, but but really for us, putting the uh, one number contact out, uh, doing our uh, emergency operations center, uh, making sure our members knew that there was somebody they could call one phone number and reach out and uh, and get the help they needed. I think we stopped at uh, 20 members losing their homes in some fashion or another, complete losses, and there were many more that ended up having some damage, just not totaled. Probably the most remarkable thing other than the number, they were in places that aren't supposed to burn. On the rainforest side of the Cascades, and uh, this isn't supposed to happen, at least on the north end. I know, I know down south, in Aaron's area, they they are the second the second leading, uh, if that's the right term, second worst, first best. I don't know on uh, wildland interface problems or challenges in the West Coast. And I'll let Aaron talk about that more. So we we had a tremendous experience with peer support and our ability to have Tim Abadara from down south also helped us in our op center operation, trying to reach out, make sure we. You know what to ask our members uh, if we got a hold of them. Most of them, were, like I said, were on duty, but we were able to contact their their families to make sure they were okay. It was good to to uh, to be able to help the best we could as an organization to make sure the uh, brothers and sisters were uh, doing the best they could while they were on the fire line and knowing their homes were checked on uh, on the backside. And I'll just let it be there at that. So, Carl, you said we had several members that lost their homes. How many members had to evacuate? If you had 2,600 of your 3,600 firefighters on the job at one time, there clearly were some folks that had to have their homes evacuated while they were at work. Do we have any idea how many of those people had to deal with that emotional struggle? Right. So, uh, yeah, we made we made 500 calls, uh, and those those 500 were, um, we were probably north of 750 as far as people that were both in the red go and yellow, you know, or level two ready to go that we contacted. So I, I suspect uh, all said and done uh, between those two groups, it was north of 750 members 
who were in the fire's path at one time or another. And, and it's not like they're saying, oh, you got to go evacuate your home, leave the fire line, take care of that and come back. Right. These, yeah, these families yeah, we are didn't. on their own. That's right. I can, I can speak firsthand to that if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I was on the fire line basically from um, Labor Day until the 23rd or 24th of September. I work for the incident management team for the state fire marshal's office. So I'm on that. And so I got after our, our local stuff, I got deployed with those guys. But during all our local stuff, my, my wife was calling me every five minutes trying to figure out what was going on because their evacuation levels just kept going up and going up. And I was in charge of one of the fires. And I'm like, I, I don't really have time to talk to you. Just get this stuff and go. And it was a it was a struggle, and we kind of chatted about it after the fact. But uh, she's like, "You were kind of, you know, that wasn't very nice of the way that you treated me and all this other stuff." And I'm like, "Listen, I got a job to do, and I know that you guys are going to be safe, and I'm trying to do my best to balance both." But it it truly was a struggle. No, I get it. And one of the things that was unique about this incident, and it does happen uh, with wildfires all over, but a lot of times, you know, as unions, we have a chance to when we have disasters like. Uh, hurricanes, we have the chance to position our team, get everybody in place, dial up the resources, watch this thing on TV for a week. You know, Carl, your team was spread out throughout the state. There was no pre-meeting and get, you know, let's get ready for this. Uh, you know, you had Aaron and Kevin and Mark, they were all at work. They're on the front lines of this thing. So Aaron, I, I know you were on the front lines. Why don't you tell us about what you were experiencing? Yeah. And, uh, kind of on the the family front um a lot of our members ran into that where we had a during the actual fire we had a our families needing to evacuate so kind of like uh, as mark was saying you know we're getting calls from our family what should we do where should we go and uh the other issue with our area is there's so many limited there's only limited ways in and out uh on the freeway things like that a lot of that was shutting down so that was a concern throughout the day um for us the fire started on uh, september 8th kind of around 11 in the morning um like carl said we would had a warning for i think a couple days that there was a wind event approaching they're protecting high heat low humidity and uh we've had a, f- a few of these fires in the past um over the last 10 years we've had two that were kind of notable but nothing like this one but most agencies that you know tried to staff up a little bit um for us, our minimum staffing is only six firefighters. So staffing up meant we had one extra firefighter, three seasonal firefighters on duty. So pretty limited staffing from the get-go. Um, fire started in the city of Ashland. And uh, because of our automatic aid agreement, um, our crews were in there assisting them. And from there, it kind of jumped into, we have areas called uh, Greenway. And it runs from... Uh, basically Ashland all the way into Central Point, kind of the north end of the county. And the fire getting into that area and from there just uh, started spreading. Um, within a half an hour of the fire starting, uh, we'd probably already lost easily 20 structures. But it was kind of one of those things you're thinking that, you know, from the beginning we were thinking we could get a, a hold on it at some point. We had a few, you know, roads we were looking at. And trying to get resources in, uh, work those areas, and then you just get blown over again. Um, the crews I was with, we were in the first neighborhood we hit. Um, you know, Again, we're in there, we're thinking we can make some headway, and just with how fast it was moving, again, it, the neighborhood was just gone. That kind of was how the day kept going. It was, you just kept, you know, you'd move to a different neighborhood, the fire had hit it, and it, you would lose the neighborhood. And, I mean, for us, that was just... Um, our, our current chief is from California. He worked at Santa Rosa. So he's kind of used to these type of fires where you have big events like this. But uh, for our department, it's, I mean, it's something completely new. It wasn't something we expected. Um, never expected to come to work. Um, think that we lose 2,300 homes in our, in our district. Yeah, it, I mean, it was crazy. Like, literally, you would think that, you know, we can make we can make a stop here. We can do something here. And if the conditions, it would just just keep blowing through for us it kind of it just kept up the winds we had i think they were saying you know 40 40 60 mile gust um the humidity single digit it's like 90 90 some degrees all day we kept hoping that the winds would would settle down because in the past um 
the bigger fires we had, that that was always what happened. The winds would switch, go back to the south. You know, the fire would burn back on itself. That day, it just didn't stop. The, the winds kept blowing. Um, you get a bit of a pause. Um, I know, I think Carl contacted me around, I think, midnight, 1 a.m., um, just to reach out, see how we were doing. And at that point, um, the, two, the two cities that our district protects are the city of Talent and the city of Phoenix. The resources we had, we basically at that point said, here's kind of the, the line of talent. We're going to, we had a road that we're like, we're not, we're going to try to keep it here. And then the same thing happened in Phoenix. We had, again, limited resources. I think we had uh, five engines um, between type sixes and type ones uh, for both cities um, spread out. The wind just never let up and it was kind of all night long we were getting those we we're still losing buildings i mean you'd think that the wind would settle down overnight and it just didn't um like carl said with the conflagration uh when we're 12 hours in it's usually when we're expecting to hear that you know we're getting strike teams from portland or strike teams from uh the west somewhere somewhere else is sending us resources around 1 a.m uh we were told that we had one strike team that was coming from I think, uh, Multnomah County. Um, it was a strike team out of Portland. And that was all we were getting. At the same time, our fire ha happened here um, to the north of us in uh, Fire District 3's area. Um, they had a fire happen in the Obachain area. And so that any resources that we had to the north were all pulled to that fire. Um, we lost a lot of air resources to that fire. It was probably around four o'clock that we started getting some heavy air resources, but by then it was just, they weren't able to make much of an impact at all. So that was just kind of how the day kept unfolding. Um, kind of around five or six the next morning, um, the fire behavior settled down. We finally had the wind stop. But even with that, the conditions we're having, we're getting spot fires in the community. And that's the other weird thing about this fire is we talked about it being an urban interface fire, but because of the way that greenway runs through the cities, it was almost like, you know, you had a, a wildfire that burned into a city and then back into the wildland and then back into another city. And it was just, for the most part, we were dealing with just multiple structure fires, just burning in wind-driven conditions all day. Um, so the next day, again, it kind of settled down. Um, by that point for us, um, we had lost one of our fire stations. The station in Phoenix actually burned down um, our headquarters station had been burned over. Fortunately, we had a couple callback members that set up the ladder truck with the master stream. We were able to do some work there and, and steer it around. Um, that was the only piece of apparatus left for them to work with. And, and fortunately, they were able to save this station. But uh, we lost all utilities. Um, no power, sewer, water uh, was all gone because of the, the fire. Um, that was the other condition we ran into that we've never experienced before because we lost so many structures. Um, the water system was overwhelmed. And uh, about midnight, uh, we lost all the hydrants in both cities all the way up to Ashland. So any work we were doing, we were have to send engines or tenders in about 10 to 15 minute turnaround time for everything. So again, already bad conditions. It was just kind of hampering the work we were trying to do. So from then on, from us, it was kind of, again, we had that, that team come down. Um, they were kind of plugged in, but that's the only resources we got was another, I think, five engines uh, kind of plugged into that system. And for us, after that day, the fire itself settled down. It was just dealing with the kind of log logistical side of it that we're still having to run our other calls. Um, we still have other fires going on. And then it was just dealing with the aftermath that, you know, we've got a station gone. We have another station that's basically, you know, uh, running on emergency power, all that kind of stuff. So it was a very hectic, hectic few days for us. You guys, wildfires aren't something new for you, but it sounds like this was a much more severe and, uh, you know, damage wildfire that didn't just happen one place but was happening all over so not only was it more than maybe you expected but you didn't have the resources that you normally had which has got to really kind of weigh and be a more difficult thing to handle am i getting the gist of that right like it sounds like this was a really yeah, yeah. yep i mean for 
for us, like you said, uh, Carl said, you know, this idea area has always been identified as a high risk area for Oregon. Got a lot of interface. Um, just it's just a different area as far as you know what we're dealing with, topography, all that kind of stuff. So it's always been high risk. But over the last few years, I mean, um, one like I said, we're we're understaffed for the for the area that or for the the danger that they say this area has. Um, we don't have the ability to meet the need. And uh, the other thing we're seeing is a, a real change in fire behavior. We had a fire about a month earlier. The fire behavior we were seeing on that was just not typical for what we normally see here. And it's the same as that day. The fire behavior that, that we were seeing, I said, uh, we keep thinking that we could do something about the wind, the dryness. The, it was just, you know, something you would never expect. It's not something we were used to, for sure. So I want to bring I want to bring Kevin in and uh, let Kevin talk about his experiences from the from those days. Uh, you know, I, I just I wasn't uh, on the line like Mark and Aaron. Uh, I represent the fourth district uh, for the state, and basically I was kind of like the communicator from the state level to uh, the locals that were affected in my area. You know, just like Mark and Aaron, as a local leader, you're always you know everybody comes to you for everything. And uh, so you definitely had to um, weigh, you know, talking to your members and their, their struggles. Cause we had lots of members that uh, were evacuated. Uh, some members were right across the street where they, the house got burned right next to them. Just like everybody else says, it's something we never saw in this area. And uh, I never thought I'd have to deal with my members possibly losing their houses. And uh, luckily none of my members lost any, but uh, just, just the way and the, the as a local leader, everybody looks to you just like they would Mark and uh, Aaron look to you for support. And uh, on the district vice president level, I really appreciated Carl's leadership to get the IFF coming in early. And uh, I know my members really appreciated the IFF reaching out to them and everybody getting a phone call to make sure their homes and their families are safe. And uh, it's just something that we're lucky to have leadership to do that with. Thanks. I want to come back and uh, I, I want to talk to Mark a little bit. Mark had mentioned earlier he was on the incident management uh, side of things for one of the fires. And I wanted to really get your thoughts on how you were managing your incident as one of nine and knowing that the resources that you would normally call upon, I mean, you probably run this through your head on a bunch of uh, situations on, I'll call this one, I'll call for this, I'll do this. You know, you know how you run you run a scenario through your head and what you would do if you were, you were running things, but you didn't have those resources for this, did you? Yeah, no, not at all. I think uh, on a statewide nation, you know, our statewide system, the system was uh, taxed is when we had everybody out that we could put out and uh, they started pulling, they started pulling strike team and task forces from out of state. And we had good folks. I think the furthest way of one was Minneapolis or Minnesota was uh, we had a task force from Minnesota that came to Southern Oregon when I ended up going down there and Utah and North Dakota and a bunch of, I mean, there's a, it was, a, it was awesome. Then all the rest of the States pitched in and, and sent crews over. And I think they're towards like, I think we were in the couple weeks, maybe almost two weeks in when we started sending the Oregon crews back home. And then it was all out of state on the fires down on uh, the Slater fire down in Southern Oregon, just out of cave junction is where I ended up on the state incident management team and there was uh, most of the task forces that were working directly for me were all from out of state at the end just before i got demoted so it was pretty great to have that support from out of state but um yeah it was unusual for sure for us to to not just be using our state resources because we've been doing that forever and i think we had i think they counted six fires over a hundred thousand acres is what it ended up being and that we're all in some sort of incident management team situation. So. Mark, I think one of the things to, to really uh, put into perspective, uh, Corliss just talked about the six biggest fires um, and, and how they were impacting the entire state. Those are just the fires that were actually named as complex or conflagration enacted fires we actually had about 25 fires going uh at the same time they just didn't reach the level 
of uh, conflagration. And, and that's the other important thing uh, as the western side of basically from Eugene uh, north to just south of Portland, um, we were uh, those some of those fires were big. They were for us gigantic uh, at a couple hundred acres. But the difference was it wasn't a hundred acres of uh, waist high wheat or just a cup, you know, light fuels with a bunch of pretty dug furs. Uh, we we stopped uh, we stopped counting at 4,200 homes and over 6,000 structures. I think that's where the the delineation comes from. We often think uh, outside of Oregon, uh, they're like, ah, you know, the jokes about outdoor, just getting indoor plumbing and stuff. Where where really this is uh, this is where the city meets the forest, and uh, we had never had this kind of fire penetration into, I won't say major urban areas, but but certainly places where you know, as Aaron talked about, entire neighborhoods burned to the ground. And um, having that, that level of impact really kind of shows our, our depth of, uh, you know, ability to respond. We, you know, you heard it multiple times from Aaron. I think we're going to draw the line here and we'll get this. And then it just kept coming. And the same thing happened with Corliss up here at the Riverside Fire. That was never deemed a complex fire. Yet we had uh, we had um, impact on not only our fire district but the fire district next door that um, you know made some amazing stands against a, a very aggressive fire, uh, but but conditions just did not help us and and our lack of depth really showed on this fire or fires I should say. You know, one of the things that touched me, well, I was on the original calls with with all of you uh, when you when we were talking about IFF disaster relief and everything, and, and maybe you can expand on it more, was there was a stretch of road that, that everybody seemed to be worried about. And there were a lot of uh, 55 and older communities in that stretch of, uh, of land. I'll let you explain a little bit more, but there was... There was a, a very certain section that got ran over by fire that you guys were very worried about. Uh, do you have an update on that community? Uh, Aaron, why don't you uh, tell them about the, the uh, 55 and older communities that you watched and had to watch? Both of our cities are kind of uh, retirement cities for the most part. One of the initial uh, uh, areas that we lost was a, a, a mobile home park. Um, that was, you know, mostly again, 55 and older, um, where that one, uh, that was kind of at the South end of talent more the North end of Ashland. Um, just North of that, we had a, a park that had, uh, about 200, uh, 55 and older again, community, um, that was immediately threatened. And then in Phoenix, we had uh, another one with around 300 homes in it that was threatened. Pretty much after we lost the one in north, north of Ashland, um, it, the fire made the run into those communities. The one in Talent was overrun pretty quickly. Um, fortunately, um, our local PD and the sheriff's office, um, they were thinking ahead and they grabbed vans from the prison, things like that, and just started loading people up and, and evacuating people. I ended up in, we had another um, 55 and holder community just north of, of that one where we ended up in, we came into the community. When we arrived, we had one structure going and I was in there, we had a, a type three and a tender and we we're thinking, well, we could hopefully stop it here. And then once again, I mean, five, 10 minutes in, we had a whole neighborhood that was going and we were basically reduced to going door to door, um, trying to evacuate those folks. Um, we found people in the house and you know, in houses didn't even know the fire was going on. Um, we had people we had to you know, we pulled out we had one lady in particular that our crew found um, she had no vehicle um, ODF made a run base our Department of Forestry made a run through the basically the front of the area that was burning uh, picked her up evacuated her and then we kept you know working the neighborhood um, by the time we left the neighborhood you know five minutes later uh, the whole thing was going or had gone from there the fire just kept kind of running that that north uh, track along the greenway 
um, get into another 55 and older park in Phoenix. Um, that park, we actually lost uh, the whole park in there. Um, unfortunately, we had two people that we weren't able to get out. One of them refused to evacuate, that type of thing, and, um, and they were lost. And then from there, it made a run in the Medford's area, and they lost, again, probably another five or more of those communities. So for us, it was, I mean, not only the logistics of fighting fire, but for the most part, we were used to trying to evacuate people. And even with that, um, you know, we just, and that was kind of a stressor for us all day is we're like, we're trying to evacuate people, but there was no way that we could know that, that we actually get everybody out of those neighborhoods, even after we were, we were forced to abandon them. So that was kind of a, a definitely a different aspect to the day that added a lot of stress to, to our members. Cause we were really concerned that we had, you know, there's a possibility of a lot of people being lost. And you, and you mentioned the stressors, which, which leads me into the peer support that you had mentioned earlier. The IFF has been on the very proactive front of training peer support counselors, getting peer support teams into these areas quickly. Uh, and we, we get them into also Oregon has a state trained team as well. You know, how did you utilize peer support in this, in this manner? I know you were getting overrun by fire, trying to evacuate people, trying to keep track of who, who you haven't lost. You know, I'm sure not everybody knows trailer parks or motor mobile home parks evacuated, you know, and there was loss of life. So it's real stressful. So go through the peer support aspect of things and how it's affected your members and how, how they were able to get supported by this. Yeah. So, uh, for us, you know, we, we had heard about the peer support, uh, team and group and, uh, and kind of the work that it had done, uh, in other areas. Um, for us, you know, there's, like I said, the stressors of not knowing what had happened. Um, one of the things that our membership has really struggled with is the fact that, you know, we're the fire department. If people call us, we can eventually, we can solve the problem. We can, you know, we can make headway in this and our members, I mean, by the end of the two days, we're just like, you know, we've worked, worked our asses off here, but we feel like we've accomplished nothing. And then there was even parts of, you know, how things go narratives that we didn't do enough. We protected certain areas. We didn't protect others. And so our guys were going through a lot of emotions and, you know, just trying to work through that along with still working, being tired. Um, you talked about evacuations for the families for us. Um, a lot of our families evacuated during the, um, that day um, simply because we didn't know where the fire was at. It's like, I believe it's, uh, Mark was talking about, you know, our families are calling us and they're like, what should we do? And we were getting information that the fire was already burning north of Medford. And the reason that we got that was because there was other fires going on. So um, again, you know, you're, you're trying to do your job, but make sure that your family's safe as well. Um, that kind of added a lot onto it. So when Carl reached out to me, and again, I want to thank Carl for the work he did in the Oregon State Firefighters Council. Uh, he re reached out really quickly, seeing what kind of support we need, um, um, offered up the peer support. I didn't really know what it would entail for us, but at that point I was like, we'll take whatever help we can get. And I definitely, you know, could see the need. So uh, Jeff Campbell came down um, initially. He deployed alone. Um, kind of came down and just walked into a, a mess here at our at our headquarters, and I mean, because we were trying to deal with the, kind of the, the fallout. Um, pretty quickly, he developed a plan. Um, uh, brought a team in, set up a, at a hotel, kind of made it uh, him and his team available to our crews and uh, Ashland and Medford um, District Three um, right away. That you know, just needed to talk if we needed any help. I mean, down to the fact that come out and help us load hose, things like that. I mean, just to kind of be with us. Um, the other great thing that they did uh, in, in regards to support is uh, they actually reached out to our families. Um, uh, Jeff reached out, um, was in contact with my wife a lot and uh, helped coordinate through the wives. They kind of, a lot of them started having groups that they were forming because this fire was very enlightening to me that we look at our job as just doing our job. We don't really look at the stress it puts on our family sometimes. That was kind of eye-opening for a lot of us was just how stressed our families were about it. So Jeff and his team did a really good job of not just providing support for us and, you know, letting our guys decompress a bit, talk, all that kind of stuff, 
but they also open that up to our families. And then with that, um, they actually coordinated uh, kind of at the end of the week they were here, a get together for our families. So families come together, um, just have a, I guess an opportunity to get away from the fire, away from kind of the disaster area that we were living in. And uh, I guess a few hours of just kind of normal and being able to be together. So I, I can't say enough good things, I guess, about how much the peer support team did for us. Um, definitely, I mean, having that, having somebody there to talk to us, um, having guys that could relate to what was going on, um, able to, you know, just, I guess, clear things out and help us out. I mean, it, it was great. So talk, talk a little bit about what goes into everything after this. Like, we know everybody gets the peer support right away. What kind of follow-up, Carl, are, are you and the locals doing with your members to make sure that they're still okay? Um, because we know this isn't something that is just a one-time event a lot of times. There's a lot of follow-up afterwards. Right. So there's a couple, a couple different things. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, mental health of our families and our members across the state is paramount to, to what we have going. So part of what uh, Jeff set up was uh, clinician access for our members as it relates to uh, any further uh, needs of theirs, right? So the, the peer support team, I think, was on the ground seven or eight days down south. Uh, we also had peer support uh, at the Beachy Creek and uh, the McKenzie area fire uh, single person resources, just checking in on those members because there was a lot of loss of life and, uh, and structural stuff where our members lost their homes for the most part. So that's kind of the mental health side. We left them with the name of several clinicians that our members could reach out. Uh, one of the things that not specific to these fires, but in the uh, PTSD and um, peer support space, uh, we recognized a need uh, not only for a statewide PTSD presumption, uh, but access to clinicians that were fire or IFF approved. So uh, throughout the state, we have a list of clinicians, uh, the kind of the alphabet soup gang, if you will, with a bunch of letters after their name who have been vetted through a process that they understand what's going through our members and their families' lives. So on that on that side, we, we left those names for uh, with leadership walking out the door. So they they have this uh, you know contact list of folks that they can reach out and talk to and they know specifically uh, what they've been through because they were in contact with Jeff down there and said, okay, we're ready to go. And uh, so we're fortunate enough that those clinicians exist and that becomes a relationship between the, the firefighter and their families and that clinician. And then, of course, if we have any uh, problems with uh, that fall into the workspace, then it becomes uh, conceivably a comp problem you know, for the firefighter. We will have long-term effects on the mental health side for this for a long time. And, and one of the things Aaron didn't really uh, talk about but did was uh, uh, this kind of uh, performance thing that we have. And it's like, you call, we come, we fix it, and we go to the next one. Well, the next one was right next door in the form of another commercial structure fire that I would say very few people here in Oregon have ever experienced, maybe, maybe none, where we have gone from fire to fire to fire and not have it be all right, if we don't stop it, it's it's going to burn down Talent, Oregon or Phoenix, Oregon. Uh, that story doesn't exist until now. And so the long-term effects will be there. But, but maybe the other part we haven't spent any time on this call about is what is Jackson County 5, Ashland, Medford, you know, the, uh, the fire districts uh, down the Saniam Valley, McKenzie River, uh, how do they deal with 25 or 30 percent of their tax base basically about a foot high and being loaded into dumpsters and taken to the dump right they they still have land that needs property taxes uh paid on it but we don't you know but a lot of the value is gone and we're a one-legged stool here in oregon fire service uh, particularly uh in the fire districts are are done or they raise their their funds by property tax. So imagine 
being in a staffing situation like Aaron is, or really all of us, uh, but more exacerbated uh, in his area, and then lose 25 or 30% of their assessed value in a fire or, or, you know, 15 small fires, really. And property taxes are due right now. So we're, we're so <laughs> this is this kind of nail-biting, one-legged stool, and they just took a bunch of our AV out. And if you're running at 80 or 85 or 90% personal service, you got nowhere to cut. You can't just sell a fire station uh, because, one, it burned up. And secondly, uh, with personal costs being what they are, we're in quite the situation, not only not only just the mental health side, but this property, uh, but this property tax sitch. And, and it's a developing story. And and we need to uh, keep our our nose the grindstone. We've worked with FEMA. We've got tremendous resources at the international, making sure we're not missing any deadlines. You know, and this is a collaborative effort. This is not just the IFF, but but all our all our fire district leadership, you know, going to our insurance, our property and casualty insurance companies like Amen, and then any federal assistance we can get. And of course, all the national politics play into this, strangely enough, in getting FEMA disaster funds released for the western part of the United States. It's sad. It's sad to say, but politics do play a big piece of that. So, hopefully, with the change in leadership up top, maybe we can see some help. Uh, you know, because this is not going away. So, so certainly, I, I mean, I, that's something I didn't even think about was the, the tax base implications. But are you see, are is it your assumption that most of these people will build back, or are they just done and leaving? Because I think it's it's a, a multi pronged approach there, right? If it's a short term loss, right. we know we can try to you know bridge that gap with some federal assistance. But these people are like, I'm done. I'm not coming back. Right. That's a different problem. What are you seeing there? What's kind of the feel of the citizens? I, th- I think asking uh, both Aaron and Mark, because they were on the ground and are back in their communities just doing what they always do, is really going to be key. Like, uh, how do you, like the mobile home communities, for instance, you know, the federal government doesn't replace mobile homes that burn. They just don't. That's not, that's not in their corridor. So, you know, Aaron talks about five, six, seven, two, three hundred space parks. That's usually a landowner who rents space and then people pull their mobile homes on them. So it creates, uh, but they still pay property tax. It's it's just a crazy setup. And I think it's by property. Like some members may have, uh, not members, but some citizens may just do exactly what you said. Like, ah, I'll just keep the dirt where it is. But we had so many commercial structures that the insurance loss, you know, uh, you guys responding on hurricanes and and going there and seeing this kind of total wiping of the planet, you know, down south in the Gulf and places that we see on the news, we've just not experienced that. So we don't have anything to to base that on uh, as far as the comeback, you know, the or or the rebound, if you will. Some some places will go. We lost a high school too. So in Phoenix, losing a high school, a a whole high school. So if you think about the enormity or the, the, uh, you know, this was not just a couple mobile homes. This was basically downtown just got wasted. And we still, it remains to be seen. And uh, the pressure on fire leadership just trickles right into union leadership and being able to get something out of nothing, basically. And and Aaron and Mark can speak to uh, how their communities are rebounding. Uh, we have we have our elected officials, both at the state and local level, understanding the problem, but they're kind of looking at each other, wondering who's going to come to the rescue. And uh, and maybe Aaron can uh, talk more specifically. But we we are pounding the pavement from U.S. senators on down uh, to get help uh, as much as we can, and then and then trying to coordinate it with the property and casualty insurance people. Who are on the hook basically to rebuild the public structures, but the private is uh, another story. Aaron, yeah. Um, so for us, like you're saying, it's not just you know we did lose a lot of mobile home parks, um, things like that. But for us, the fire actually got into kind of core areas, so there was a lot of commercial property lost. Um, there was a lot of uh, kind of the the core area of the city of Talent lost. Um, the other part that 
that we experienced uh, kind of midday. Uh, we had an arsonist in Phoenix that actually got into the, kind of the core area there, set another fire that burned through basically three whole neighborhoods, um, a large part of uh, kind of the you know apartment style buildings and another commercial area and kind of tied into the, the fire that was already going. So there was just a lot of loss. One of the, I think the differences for this area is uh, we've had so much influx from uh, people moving here from other states um, and the demand for property and people to live here um, just is not going to go away. So we've already got some people, you know, they're not waiting for FEMA. They're not waiting for the, the city or the county to say, we're going to help you clean up. They've already started the process and, and are rebuilding. The other part of it is like Carl saying, we've never experienced this before. So the local government, um, you know, be it our district, the cities involved, they really had no idea of how to handle it or who to ask for help or where to get, um, you know, assistance with tax revenue, that kind of stuff. We had had projections anywhere from 20, 25 to 50% of our revenue being lost. Um, currently, I think it stands at probably 15 to 20% um, over the next few years, which is still substantial because like Carl's saying, 80 to 90% of our budget is personnel and we already don't have enough personnel to deal with the, you know, the, the situations we have here. Um, so said so the, the bright spot is, is people are moving back in. People are, are rebuilding. One of the areas is the cities are struggling with is that they had a lot of lower income housing and they want to be able to keep that available. Um, but with mobile home parks, um, we had a few single wide parks. Um, they're just not able to be brought back because they don't even build those type of parks anymore. So there's that struggle of trying to get the community rebuilt, but still be able to provide for everybody in the community at the same time. So the cities are working through that. For us, that's another kind of thing on my members is now I've got members concerned. Well, we've had this massive fire. You know, we already felt that we didn't, you know, we were struggling to do everything we could. And we, you know, you, you feel with that, that feeling of defeat on that end. And now we're being told that there's possibility you know, we could be looking at jobs if if uh, if all of that we were hearing was true. Um, fortunately, from our end, um, our district has you know has done a good job of managing itself uh, for a lot of years, and we've slowly grown. The unfortunate part was we were getting ready to hopefully get that staffing increase, but I guess the the fortunate part is we have enough to hopefully we can cut from operations things like that. That for the next couple of years, while the community rebuilds. Uh, we can make it through. Ideally, like Carl's saying, it needs to be a political issue too that we need um, our elected officials to recognize that, you know, this is the time we need assistance, that there should be measures in place to help us get that revenue back to, to make it through those couple of years. Again, our, our chief is from California. He's talked a lot about California will provide, um, I think, up to three years of, of lost revenue for districts that face uh, these kind of disasters. Um, so obviously they deal with it a lot. I'm hoping Oregon can get there too. It's just, again, this isn't, this isn't something we're used to. It's, it's something new. And unfortunately for us, we're the, we're one of the agencies across the state right now. They're having to deal with being part of that new thing and figuring out how we're going to recoup those losses. Well, certainly I think the most important people to talk to are the people, the locals that are most affected, but, uh, I was able to represent the fourth district uh, on the state level and uh, give Carl, the secretary of treasurer updates, what my members are going through. I was getting lots of emails from uh, Mark, um, what Clackamas was, was going through and uh, being able to be part of that cog to move the whole system forward was, I guess, rewarding and to show what uh, the IFF does when its members truly need help. We were able to send several crews down south to uh, Medford, and we had crews in Clackamas. And at the same time, just like everybody else is, we are very understaffed. We had crews just like everybody else that were just nonstop working. Um, although we were not always on the fire line, you know, but as a statewide, we all felt it. And uh, not to not at the amount that the members that were on the fire line, but uh, we were able to come together and, uh, you know, as a membership and look after each other. So Aaron, you bring up, uh, 
you and Carl both bring up very important issues in terms of how, how these communities rebuild in the aftermath and how it affects firefighters. And I'm going to close the show on that, on that note, but I, w- I do want to go around the table one more time and, and get a closing thought from, from each member that was involved in this, uh, you know, where you, where you thought the state did a great job, how you utilize your resources and what are some recommendations you have for others in communities like yours that haven't experienced this yet, but have that opportunity to just be sitting there one day and have multiple fires sprout up around them and have their community wiped out. And I'll start with you, Carl. I think uh, first and foremost, uh, the relationship that locals have with their DVP uh, in regards to getting resources that, that frankly, I had uh, as experienced as I am uh, dealing with the mothership, I had no idea the depth between uh, Tim and Rick Swan and certainly AGP Morrison and, and all the uh, peer support things that were, we had an idea, but we had no idea the depth of that, how deep that goes. And then um, really thinking about at a local level, an action plan on how you're going to contact all your members. Uh, if something like this happens, and then really just sticking it together. So go back to the relationships, uh, reach out next door, don't silo, and really just be there for people willing to listen and then pulling the trigger and asking for help. Uh, This is way beyond, obviously, a statewide response. Uh, Although it happened here, we we couldn't get help from Washington and Oregon, our two partners, our usual suspects, as far as help. Uh, so we had to go, you know, to Minneapolis. So that tells you the uh, the depth of the problem, uh, but it's ongoing. And I, and I think we have to pay attention to the long term, both mental health and, and the revenue issue. And, and we're going to need help from the international. We're going to need help from our elected officials all the way up to the president of the United States. And we have to stick together. And, and thanks for putting this together, Mark. It really did, uh, I think, uh, work out good. Kind of cathartic to talk about it too. Um, so uh, thanks again for putting this together. Thanks for coming on. I think it's an important discussion to have. And you've brought up points that, you know, I don't, well, I certainly didn't think of. And I, you know, I think Doug's the same way on that. I'm going to switch over to Kevin. Kevin, give us your final thoughts. Well, like Carl, thank you for uh, putting this together. Uh, I was very nice to hear from the other local leaders what they were, what they were tasked with. You know, I just as kind of a final thought, uh, I think I think Carl set us on the right you know path and getting all the DVPs, district, the state district vice presidents on board early and having uh, sometimes daily conversations about what was happening in a very quickly changing atmosphere and uh, something that was affecting a lot of our members and at the same time all the citizens that we protect. Um, so. Uh, kudos to Carl and his team to come up with that idea. Um, I would look to other leaders, other state leaders, to follow his plan on that one um, and get ATVPs in on it early. And uh, so, thank you, Carl, and uh, thanks for having us go through this. Thanks for coming today, Kevin. We appreciate it, Aaron. Yeah, again, uh, you know, thanks for doing this and bringing it out there. And again, I want to reiterate thanks to Carl and the Oregon State Firefighters Council, um, just the support they gave us throughout this. It really always appreciated being a member of the international, but this really highlighted just the the depth of support that even as a smaller local we we have. And so appreciate that. Um, learning point for us um, is uh, our our district and our board is making a lot more efforts to be involved in the planning of the, the community from here on out with the cities that are involved. And uh, they've really realized that you can't function as an island. And uh, we all share boundaries and uh, kind of work work together to build a relationship and hopefully, if not prevent, at least mitigate these disasters in the future. Good. Thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Mark Corliss, take us home, Mark. Oh, great. I have to be last, huh? I think, uh, you know, I'm a pretty new local leader, you know, I haven't been the president for a year yet, but um, I think one of the biggest things that this, uh, that this proved to me is that the, the job and the things that we do, it's all about relationships. It's relationships with the the other local leaders, with the state, with the international, it's relationships with the community members and the political people that we have to deal with in the county and the state. 
all of these things, they all kind of intertwine together. And without those relationships, I don't think we can progress forward or we can protect the people that we have. So uh, I appreciate everybody's help and during the fires and today. So I hope everybody has a great day. All right. I want to take this opportunity to thank Carl Kennig, president of the Oregon State Firefighter Council and uh, his leadership team from the state for their efforts on today's show. Uh, tremendous story, Doug, I believe, um, brought up a lot of points that we didn't think of and how after the media tunes out of the fires and the social media is on to something else that these communities still have a long ways to go to recovery and, and not just recovering and building the stores and and bringing the people back, but it's also making sure our members have jobs to continue to protect the communities. It really brings it home to just the struggles that our firefighters have with wildfires. It's not just the fire. It's the aftermath that a lot of times is sometimes just as devastating to fire departments and firefighters. And I think the leadership that we see in Oregon with Carl in the ninth district in, in the IFF will hopefully give our guys and our members the tools that they need to get through this and be stronger on the back end. Absolutely. On that note, I want to thank everybody for listening to the IFF podcast. I appreciate you joining us today and uh, wish you the best of luck moving forward. Catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you.